Well, amen to that wonderful hymn to sing prior to the service. And what an encouraging church service we're having today. There are things that happen and they create kind of time stamps in our lives. At least I believe that. And it works with my memory. I don't know if you're like me, but, um, but they create time stamps. And sometimes baptisms, you know, it's something we do in obedience to Christ. But it also creates kind of a time stamp to encourage us moving on with our faith, moving forward with our faith journey. And I hope that the power outage can make it even more memorable as we go through this. I've been in a sermon series where I'm taking different scriptures that have been convicting to me, convicting on me to pray scripture. I call it the praying scripture series. Uh, Scripture passages that I've been convicted to pray. And I pray them. I've been convicted from a young age to pray scripture. I've been convicted from a young age to pray these scripture passages for my children and grandchildren uh, and great-grandchildren and so on, even though they're not even yet born. I really do believe no one is saved. Yeah, children are dismissed at junior church, by the way. Um, I really do believe no one is saved except by prayer. I really do believe... That the church is strongest when we pray together. I I really do believe that our prayers are strongest when we're praying our heart to God. But I believe strongly what better to pray to the Lord than the word of God. The inspired word of God back to him. And, you know, this whole series has been convictional about being spiritual leaders in the home. As parents, as grandparents, and grandparents don't sell yourself short, you have a high responsibility being spiritual leaders in the home. Most, a lot of children, if you talk to them, their first spiritual experiences were their parents, their grandparents, their grandparents studying the Bible with them, their grandparents taking them to church. If you read through Deuteronomy, which we're studying at 9.30 a.m. in Sunday school and Wednesday night, by the way, you can see repeatedly God telling the people when your children ask, but also when your grandchildren ask. And we see repeatedly throughout the Old Testament the exhortation not only to teach the children, but also the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. And remember what we model is more important than what we say. So if we model a Christian faith to our children, our grandchildren, our descendants, that is not taking the word of God, the people of God, the church seriously, that will speak stronger than what we say. Do as I say, not as I do, does not work in the church. And it's certainly not God's way. So, you know, we come to Revelation 4, 9 through 11, which has been a convictional passage for me, and so I want to talk about that today. You know, I've read the following in the book Vertical Church by James McDonald. He writes, Something unusual captured the world's imagination at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, Australia. If you think back and squint, you may be able to recall the ceremony. You may, re, you may be able to recall the surprising word hanging from the Sydney Harbor Bridge unveiled at the opening ceremony. When the torch was lit to launch this long-awaited crown for the land down under, the background sky was illumined by an Olympic display of fireworks. 
Just then, a massive sign that hung on the bridge flashed to brilliance. And in a moment, people around the globe read what God has placed inside each of us. The word was eternity. Eternity. What a strange word to select as a theme for the Olympics. Let me tell you the background to this word. In November 1932, in Australia, a down-on-his-luck World War I veteran named Arthur Stace was homeless and hopelessly addicted to alcohol. His life of gambling and petty crime had only worsened his poverty and driven him to suicidal depression. Having failed at everything he could think of to content the aching cavity in his soul, he stumbled one Sunday night into a church. In God's providence, preaching that evening was a a man named John Ridley, who spoke on the subject of eternity. You're on your way somewhere, brother, and and God made you to long for the place you're headed for. Ridley eloquently described the settled destination of every human being with the word eternity. He repeated the word again and again and again, eternity, eternity. Eternity. Those eight letters captured Stace's mind and demanded from his life a major course correction. As Ridley proclaimed the truth of every person's march toward eternity and the only gospel that prepares a soul for that inevitability, the God of the universe invaded Stace's soul. Conquered by the message of salvation and Christ's provision for his own eternity, Stace dedicated the rest of his life to doing what he, could, what he could to help people find the God who had found him. Get this. Every day, for more than 35 years, Stace rose before the sun. And after a cup of tea and a few moments in Bible reading, he'd go out into the streets of Sydney with a piece of chalk and write the word eternity. Over and over, Thousands of times, Stace wrote this word in the same beautiful script. As the town awoke, people would see the word everywhere, on the sidewalk, outside a coffee shop, on the backside of a street sign, and on the cornerstone at the base of a building. Eternity mysteriously appeared all over town. Somehow, instead of being insulted by the overtly spiritual message, people reported feeling strangely encouraged. From all the walks of life, Sydney citizens were stumbling upon eternity, scrawled in the most surprising places. Until 1956, no one knew where the writing came from. But they finally found him, Arthur Stace. And no one demanded he stop his daily discipline. Instead, they supported, even celebrated, his graffitied message of the life to come. If you go to Sydney today... You can enter a particular government building, and up inside the bell in one of the towers, you can find the word written by Stace, still legible, more than 50 years later, eternity. Stace died in 1967 at 83 years of age, but he left an impact that will last long after every chalk mark has faded. His gravestone reads, Arthur Malcolm Stace, Mr. Eternity, a word he had written more than 500,000 times, 500,000 times. 
Thirty years after his death, the host country chose that word to express the longings of the world at the first Olympics of a new millennium. Eternity. It's a powerful word that penetrates deep into the soul of every human being. And every time we make a choice that detours our search for fulfillment, eternity shouts within us, you're getting colder. We were all created to live forever. We were all created to live for eternity. But oftentimes we don't think about it, do we? Do we live for eternity or do we live for now? Do we live for God? I want to make the case today we need to live vertically. Vertically. It's about God. In September of 2012, I went and saw Pastor James McDonald preach about his book, Vertical Church. And it gave vertical a new meaning in my life. It gave some of these passages a new meaning. You see, we're called to worship vertically about God and not about us. We're called to live vertically. It's about Jesus and not about us. It's not horizontal. Our lives are not to be horizontal. We are first and foremost to please and worship and glorify God. Live vertically. And so my theme today, pray that you and your children live vertically. Pray that you live out Revelation 4. 11. And I'm going to read Revelation 4, 9 through 11. If you want to turn there, you can, if you can see. If you can't, I know a good eye doctor, but I don't think he can make you see in the dark. He's in the fourth row from the back. Uh, Revelation 4, 9 through 11 says, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Who is worthy to be worshipped? God. Who created all things? God. Ephesians 1 3 and Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Paul notes that our lives are immersed in blessings. And verse 4 even says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Chose, this means to speak forth. Genesis chapter 1, God spoke forth creation. Psalm 139 shows the Lord knit us together in our mother's wombs. We are not accidents, we are not surprises to God. The only response to this is self-sacrificial worship. The only response is to worship God in humility. The only response is to just join these elders that we see in Revelation 4, 9 through 11, as well as Revelation 5, and worship God in humility. The only response is to say, you are worthy, our Lord and God. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. In this passage, they are worshiping God in heaven, and they are giving glory and honor to God. It's not about themselves. Actually, the passage says they fall down. They're constantly bowing down and worshiping God. They're casting their worldly crowns down to the ground, and they are worshiping God. Now, what is our focus? Is our focus on God this morning? Is our focus on God through the week? Are we living for God? Are we living vertically? Are we living for eternity? We exist because God chose to create us. 
Who do we think we are and who do we live for? You know, if you read through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, which I encourage you to do, but if you've never read the New Testament, start there. Read the Bible backwards. But read the Old Testament too. And when you read through the whole Bible, we see that us human beings create an image of God. We are very prideful, arrogant, rebellious people. We constantly spit in his face. It's nothing new. Don't be too hard on yourself, but definitely be repentant. I mean, God fashioned man and woman out of the clay, created them in his image, gives them Adam and Eve, this garden of Eden, this fabulous place, and they totally spit in his face and rebel against him. Now, you and I, we wouldn't do any better. We would probably do the same thing. I'm just exhorting you and myself as well. I got to preach the passage to myself always. Though we have been rebellious in the past, accept God's free gift of salvation and live for him. And even though you may have said some prayer of salvation and maybe even been baptized, make sure you are following God. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, examine yourself and make sure you're in the faith. Are you living for God? Are you modeling it? Are you praying these passages? I meet with many people. It's part of my job. I have to meet with people and uh, be social. I like people. Anyways, uh, and people will talk to me and they'll say, I don't know why my children don't go to church. And then the next Sunday, they sleep in and skip. I don't know why my grandchildren aren't in church. And then they come to Sunday school and leave and don't come to church. I don't know why they don't value church. And then they skip to go hunting or whatever it may be. Worship is our response to what we value most. We worship what we value most. Follow the trail of your time, energy, and money, and you will find out what you live for. Whether it's eternity, whether it's God, whether it's vertical, or whether it's horizontal. Most of the time, we end up worshiping idolatrous things. One person writes, I'm not a historian by any means, but I have long been fascinated by the Second World War. Specifically, I've studied the gradual ascendancy that led to Hitler's iron-fisted control of all things Germany. Inflaming a common hatred of the Jews, random raids, relentless surveillance, and a beating or imprisonment of all opponents were the major factors in Hitler's meteoric rise to absolute power. William Dodd, the American ambassador to Germany, warned President Roosevelt continuously, but most world leaders preferred a version of facts that discredited reports of Nazi insanity to avoid another great war. A final factor cannot be ignored. Even as news circulated that Hitler had ordered the murder of Ernst Röhm and hundreds more, proclaiming himself der Führer, which means grand leader, upon Hindenburg's death that summer of 1937, almost no one resisted or even objected. Why? Why did they not resist Hitler? What kept world leaders at bay and fashioned a sterile environment for the incubation of insanity was the adoration of Hitler by the majority of the German people. The adoration of Hitler by the majority of German people. 
The German masses worshipped Adolf Hitler with a loyalty and passion that insulated his rise from sustainable opposition. Women wept in the streets as his car passed by. Men would dig and save a portion of sod upon which Der Fuhrer's foot had fallen. You notice that. That's an extreme example, but it is an example of how we end up living horizontally and not vertically. How we end up being about this world and not eternity, not vertical. I have another passage I want to look at. It's Exodus 33.15. Exodus 33.15. Moses is talking to the Lord, and Moses says, it says, then he said to him, Moses said to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. If your presence, if the Lord's presence does not go with us, don't lead us up. Because what had happened was the people rebelled against God. In Genesis, in Exodus, God had preserved his people. He led them out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, had all these plagues on Egypt, had, had, had led them out. And while Moses is up at the burning bush receiving the law... The people make a golden calf. Actually, this is how it happened. Exodus 32, 24, Aaron says, I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. That's just how it happened. They threw some gold in the fire, and pop, there's the calf. It's like bewitched or something, or I dream a genie. I don't know, one of those shows out came this calf that's what Aaron said they totally rebelled against God and Moses says and so the Lord is going to turn them over to their ways the Lord says you go ahead enter the promised land but you're going on your own I'm not going with you God was just going they made their choice God was just going to let them do what they chose to do but you know what Moses says if your presence does not go with us. We don't go. Moses basically says that God is the one who separates them from the other nations. Moses intercedes for the people and that he wants God's presence with them. Moses is saying, this is pointless without the Lord. And isn't that true? Our Christian life, our very lives are pointless without the Lord. Why go to church without the Lord and his glory? Why worship the Lord without the Lord and his glory? Why go forward without the Lord and his glory? We live for eternity. We live vertically. We worship the Lord. We live only to glorify the Lord. It has to be all about God. And the world, society, is spending millions of dollars, billions of dollars, to make you focus on anything but God. Go to Disney World sometime. I'm not condemning Disney World, you Disney people. I'm just saying, they want us to focus on anything other than God. They want us to fill, they want to fill our God-shaped void in anything other than God, anything other than eternity. They want to make us worship the horizontal, not the vertical. And I get... 25 to 35 minutes a week to try to challenge myself and the Lord's people. That's not the way. We got to live vertically. We got to live for eternity. We got to worship the Lord. 
We got to live like these people in Revelation 4, 9 through 11. Saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. It's pointless without the Lord. C.S. Lewis, in satirical humor and sarcasm, wrote this. He says, because God and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any touch with him at all, you will, in fact, be humble. Delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy your whole life. Get that. When we get in touch with God, it has to give us humility of who God is and who we are. He is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Lewis, C.S. Lewis continues. God's trying to make you humble in order to make that moment possible. Trying to get you to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we have all got ourselves up in and are strutting about life like the little idiots that we are. That's uh, C.S. Lewis calling us idiots, not me. Who are you living for? Do you live vertically for God? Do you want your children and grandchildren to live vertically for God? And do you pray that way? I would encourage you. I would challenge you. I would exhort you, myself included, all of us, to strive to live for God and pray Summarize these passages, pray these passages. When you read Revelation 4, 9 through 11 or these other passages, pray, Lord, help me to live this way. Lord, help me to worship you this way. Lord, help my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my descendants to live this way and worship you this way. And repent when you mess up. Repent. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning, our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee. Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. Only thou art holy, there is none beside thee. Perfect in power and love and purity. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. All thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do you need to repent? Sometimes we think we know him, but if you examine your life, as 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, we really don't know him. Maybe we've said a prayer like it's a magical formula, a sinner's prayer, but that's not knowing Jesus. Are you a fan of Jesus or a follower? Jesus calls us to be followers. If you're sitting here and you're living for the horizontal, you're probably a fan. You're on the sidelines. You're watching others, but you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. There's one way to examine yourself. Look, do you have the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you love the things that God loves? Do you hate the things that God hates? Do you love the bride of Christ, the church? Look around. This is who you're going to be with in heaven. See, so you better love each other. You can summarize the gospel 
with an acronym that spells gospel. God created us to be with him, Genesis 1 through 2. God created us to be in a relationship with him. But our sins, they separated us from God. We see that in Genesis 3. Our sins, we don't think they're that bad because we're comparing ourselves with our neighbor or with what we see on the news. But you got to compare yourself with God's standard. And God's standard is perfection. Sins cannot be removed by good works. We see that in Genesis 4 through Malachi 4. So paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. We see that in Matthew through Luke. Everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. And life that's eternal means we will be with Jesus forever. And you'll be with Jesus now. I'm going to pray. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And Lord, I know that there's people here who do not know you as Lord and Savior. Or maybe they've known you, but they've been a fan. They haven't been a disciple. They haven't been committed to you. Oh, Lord, I pray that today's a day of commitment. Today is the day of following you and being committed to you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, we can respond to your grace and your love and respond to the gospel by telling you that we want to respond in a simple prayer like this. If you'd like to respond to Jesus today and come to know him, there is no prayer that saves you. It's in your heart that saves you. But you certainly can tell God what that you want to live for him and accept his gift of salvation in prayer. And you could pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I've sinned, I've done wrong things, and I've missed your perfect standard. Jesus, I believe that you're the way, the truth, and the life. You're the only way for salvation and for heaven. I'm trusting you as Lord and Savior. I believe in you, and I'm committing my life to you. Jesus, help us to commit to you. Help us to live vertically. Help us to live for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. As Bill comes up, let me remind you, uh, we have a, a dinner in the fellowship hall, which is still going on. After the service, you can go right up there. Everyone's invited. Guests are definitely invited. Everyone is invited. Please stay if you can. Uh, congratulate the Baptist, the candidates who got baptized today. And I, I want to thank uh, special thanks to Men of Faith and to Ray and Deborah coming out last night and today, setting this up and, and uh, supporting us this way. Let's all stand and sing. We are one in the bond of love. Right?